Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're looking at a very familiar passage tonight. But let me, just as we look at that, unpack for me what is the the significance of this for us living in the culture that we do. You put two Christians in a room and give them an hour, and very soon the theme of the conversation will be turning to the culture in which we live and the growing threats on the horizon. And the question is, how are we able to live as Christians in this culture? Well, let me remind you that the church flourished in a first-century pagan culture. And as Paul the Apostle writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, this is what he's saying to them, to him and to the church in Ephesus. Uh, Timothy, live this way, minister this way, and God will be glorified. Let's read together verse 14 of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which do no good, but only ruins the, reader, the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irre- irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord should depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of faith, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let's pray. Father God, this is not any old book we have before us. This is your book, the very book of God. And you have so given it to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that that Spirit who inspired it would enable us to understand it to our blessing and to your glory. Amen. Well, you know, God's people in every culture, because human culture is made up of sinners, there will be things that work against the gospel, and we can see that in our day, can't we? We can certainly see it in Dundee. And to understand what is going on here in the interaction between Paul and Timothy, 
We need to understand what is going on in that culture so far as we can in order to understand why Paul writes with the urgency that he does. Because you sense the urgency in what the apostle says. This is not a game. Some were being influenced more by culture than by Scripture. And it's happening today. But you know, the church never ever wins the world by becoming like the world. And each generation has to learn that. Sure, we've got to listen to our culture, but we are to be led by Scripture. We are to have that prophetic voice to our culture. And so, Paul writes, with this urgency, they had begun to slide into what was called Gnosticism, Uh, Lots of little Gnostic mystery cults existed in the first century, and they depended on uh, mystic information that came to them. And this was beginning to infect the church. And they were beginning, some of them at least, to listen more to these strange messages than they were to the apostolic word. And secondly, we need to know in this culture that in a Greek culture, the flesh was seen as corrupt and the spirit was seen as pure. Therefore, the message of the resurrection seemed decidedly weird to them. Why would you want to resurrect the flesh that is corrupt when the Spirit is pure? And it could be that this is what's coming through in what Paul writes to Timothy here. Because these two who are mentioned, Hymenaeus and Philetus, we are told have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. In other words, the resurrection isn't really what the apostles are teaching it to be. It's some kind of ethereal thing. Maybe like the liberals of our day, they would talk about a spiritual resurrection and not a physical resurrection. So why is this such a danger? Yes, it made the message of the gospel more culturally appealing, but it undermined the gospel. Jesus was and is both truly God and truly man. The rescue had to come from God's side. The restitution had to come from our side. And Jesus, God in the flesh, came over to our side to do for us what we never could do ourselves. And that's the way the message of Christ holds together. He is both truly God and truly man. And He came And he did what he said he would do, living perfectly. He came to redeem us, lock, stock, and barrel, including our flesh. But this was very, very countercultural in Ephesus and the Ephesus of Timothy's day. But if they were to fall here, then the gospel would fall. And the Scriptures teach us that we are in Christ, in union with Him, and that includes all of us, body and soul. Now, there will always be aspects of a culture that challenge the gospel. That is the sea in which we swim. That always happens, and in every generation. But in our 21st century setting, it's not so much the sea in which we swim It is the agenda that is being advanced, and sometimes very aggressively. So it's not so much in our day a mystical idea of words of knowledge and so forth coming to us that we say are the words of God. It's much more in our culture. This is how I feel, 
therefore this is what I am. That's what we're facing in our culture. So what are we to do? Well, let me just point out a couple of things because before we come to the, the main substance of the text, but these are important. And the first thing is this, that God is sovereign. If the spiritual tide is out in Northern Ireland, it is out in the sovereignty of God. That is no less the responsibility of us to be faithful in the proclamation of the gospel, but God is sovereign. Secondly, the early church flourished in a pagan culture. Thirdly, the power of the gospel is undiminished. Fourthly, the regenerating ability of the Holy Spirit is also undiminished. Fifthly, we have read the book, and guess what? The Lamb wins. And sixthly, key to the health of the church in any culture is the Word in the hands of pastors and elders and indeed of all of God's people. And so, in that cultural setting, this is why Paul writes what he does to Timothy. So, what do we do? As we find ourselves in the middle of a cultural maelstrom of confusion, watching while sanity dies, touched by the madness and lies. Well, the advice here is for a young pastor called Timothy, but its application is much wider. I've divided it into three, and here they are. Be committed in your sphere of influence. Be a good workman of the Word. Listen to the culture, but be led by Scripture. Paul puts it like this, present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. In shorthand, we could say, if that's what it says, then say it, and keep on saying it. Secondly, keep clean. Strive for holiness of life. Are we fit vessels for the service of Christ? Paul writes, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, that is, acts in holiness, from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. In shorthand, if it's dubious, don't do it. Keep away from it. And thirdly, be submitted to Christ as Lord. And that means something. That means being submitted, not to your construct of who Christ is, but to His Word. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, leading to a knowledge of the truth. If it's true, then do it. The first part was presentation. The second part is application. Do it. First of all, then, be committed. Be a word-centered work person, verses 14 to 19. Timothy, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. And that's a, a term that was used in archery in the original Greek. 
They have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. So we listen to what Paul is saying here as he speaks into this first century pagan culture, and he's saying to them, don't be engaged with that which is frivolous and insubstantial. Listen carefully to what teachers are saying and test it by the canon of Scripture. You see, theology, true theology, must always lead to doxology. What we know of God should lead to the worship of God. I'm so blessed, you know. I, I get to study God's Word most mornings. And I get paid for it. What's not to like about that? And I'm so glad sometimes that I've got an office to myself because sometimes when something of the truth of Christ hits me, I'm up off my seat. It's wonderful. Our theology, what we know of God, must always lead to doxology, the worship of God. Theology is not dull. And yet, there were those who had set aside the apostolic deposit of truth, and they were well into their own ideas. You know, in, in my teens, my friends and I were very much into motorcycles, and we, we were, oh, we were, uh, we were really into it. And I remember my, my friend Alec was the first of us to get a motorcycle. It was a Suzuki GT50, restricted to 33 miles per hour, but we thought it was just a silver dream machine. And so what we did was we went down to what was called the 50 pitches in the south side of Glasgow, 50 football pitches. If you've ever gone to Glasgow Airport, you've run through the 50 pitches. It's no longer 50. <laughs> um, but but we, we went down there and we got Alec's bike and we were on our cycles. We're only 15, 16. And so Alec was giving us shots on his motorbike, and it was fantastic. We were having a great time. And then suddenly, someone said, there's a police van. So what did we do? We did what any self-respecting group of teenage boys would do. We legged it. <laughs> and of course, the police had it all planned. They had guys at the other side of the pitches and everything. And, and we, they, they got us, and they, they put us all in the back of the police van. I'll guarantee that no speaker at the Crescent has ever told you something like this, isn't it? <laughs> and we were in the back of the police van, and they got us all round, and they got us together with the rest of them who had been caught at the other side of the railway bridge. And after, after everything had been sorted out, that the, Alec was the registered owner of the bike and everything, we were doing no harm. The police officer said to us, okay, boys, he said, it's fine. He said, why did you run? Good question. Why did we run? Because there was something in us that rebelled. There was a feeling that in some way we must be guilty. We are sinners, and what comes from us can often be sinful. That's who we are, and that's the way we live our lives. Here we were, into this insubstantial interest, and found out 
as far as we were concerned and responding in a way that was inappropriate. It's only now looking back that I realize what we must have sounded like talking about horsepower and brake horsepower and cubic capacity and all the rest of it. It's only looking back now from the vantage point of my 50s that I see and hear what we sounded like. And Paul calls for here, what Paul calls for here is for believers to discern what is superficial and what is substantive. What is it that holds us? Is it that which is ephemeral and passing? Or is it that which is eternal? What is dangerous? And what is sound doctrine? How many fellowships have been sunk sunk by the, the insubstantive and the passing? Now listen to the strength of the apostolic injunction. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, charge them before God not to quarrel about words which make no difference and just end up confusing people. And there are people like that in churches, don't they? Aren't there? I found in my experience as a pastor over the years, there's a certain subgroup of people who love to talk about theology. I found this in the Highlands of Scotland when I ministered there. You would go to visit someone and they would spend half an hour trying to find out if you were a Calvinist. But as soon as you pressed them on their personal walk with God, they retreated. They didn't want to deal in that kind of way, and it made me wonder about the depth of their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, because the believer will want to talk about Jesus, but not these guys. They wanted to talk about their own homespun philosophies. They wanted to talk about that which was the latest thing to hit the spiritual marketplace in a first-century pagan world. And Paul is saying, don't listen to that stuff. Don't listen to that stuff. In fact, gently but consistently by the application of the Word of God, call them out. The question is, what then is of substance? Well, it's the Old Covenant and the Apostolic Word. The New Testament wasn't completed then, but they had the Old Covenant Scriptures that pointed to Jesus, and they had the apostles as the repositories of Christ's Word to them under the New Covenant. And there is our substance as believers. It is Vody Bochum, the American preacher, who says, we have a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses reporting supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies. These men were no fakes. There is a historicity, an integrity, a power to the word that makes it relevant in every generation. Paul to Corinth, for I delivered to you as of what is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This is the substance. And so, Paul is saying to Timothy, this is the substance of the gospel. And your job as a pastor, as a leader in the church, is to apply that truth. 
and to call out those who are in error, but to do it gently and consistently. Back in Dundee, I have a friend who is, well, she's now 98, and she is a good friend. She's a retired head teacher. And when she was, when she was 96 or so, she needed a washer replaced in the tap in her kitchen. And so she phoned, got the yellow pages, and she phoned a plumber, and the plumber came and fixed the dripping tap, and then proceeded to try to get her to pay a bill of 400 and something pounds. Now, as I say, she was a retired head teacher. My friend is no pushover. And so she said to him, 400 pounds. Just you stand there while I call trading standards. She didn't panic, but she called him out on it. Really? This is wrong. I can tell you she dined out in that story for a while as well. Paul calls Timothy to do the same, not to, to go along with it, but to see it for what it is. Do your, do your best, says Paul, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth and applying it where it's needed. You see, the Bible correctly exegeted and presented does its own work in the power of the Spirit who inspired it. And Paul would encourage Timothy and does with these words, dodgy teachers notwithstanding, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, being the, the seal of the Spirit, I believe. The Lord knows who are His, and they show it. How do God's people show their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ? They show it by responding to His Word. John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And so, as pastors and leaders and others who are involved in different aspects of ministry, we keep on preaching the Word. And I know it's not the kind of message that many people want to hear these days, but it's the kind of message that the church needs to hear to stay healthy and to stay sound. Secondly, keep clean. Strive for holiness. Be a fit vessel for the Lord's work. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from that which is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, what does that mean practically? We, we, when Paul talks about cleansing ourselves there, what he's talking about is not the cleansing that comes uh, through Christ as we come to faith in Him. He's talking about those who take action to remain holy. This might surprise you, but let me be very practical about this. 
I, I park my car in a car park every day, every working day. And I make my way to the office, central Dundee. And as I'm walking along the road, I'm on my way every morning to study the words to help lead the church along with others. And there is a very, very dodgy shop in my left as I walk up Reform Street in Dundee. And every morning I use it as a kind of exercise not to look at it. Because it's not going to help me in the task that God has called me. It's not going to glorify Him in and through me for the blessing of His people and the glory of His name. And that's the same with us. If we're doing stuff, if we're looking at stuff, which is so easy these days, we're not going to be clean vessels for the Master. His Spirit is going to be grieved by us. And so we need, if we're going to serve Jesus effectively, to walk in holiness and in accountability. Would you be prepared to let your nearest and dearest see your laptop, your iPhone, your iPad? These are the standards for the servant of Christ. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, let a man once become really holy, even though he has but the slenderest ability, and he will be a fitter instrument in God's hand than a man of giant accomplishments who is not obedient to the divine will or clean or pure in the sight of the Lord God Almighty. We can't kid God. Living that way is a sign of unbelief. And in particular, those of us who lead have a responsibility here because the impact of a fallen elder or pastor has a disproportionate impact upon the church. So we have a responsibility to guard our hearts. You know, in the Lewis revival, God shook the place wherein they met when one man stood up and prayed, Oh God, is my heart pure? Are my hands clean? Robert Murray McShane, godly pastor of Dundee, said this, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. And all of us in some way are ministers of the gospel. Paul says, flee or depart from iniquity, but pursue righteousness. It's not just about not doing, it is about doing. It is about engaging with our God in righteousness. Romans 13, Paul says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. How counter-cultural is that? How counter-cultural in Paul's day was that, in Timothy's day? But this is the living and enduring Word of God, so that we can be fit vessels as part of healthy churches. Again, McShane said this, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. And then lastly, be submitted 
verses 23 to 26. And the Lord's servant, literally doulos there, the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You know, I read this as a pastor of a city center church. And in any week, there's all kinds of stuff to deal with. And I feel like Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 who said, who is sufficient for these things? And then just as I'm about to jack it in and go and do something else, I remember 2 Corinthians 3, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is in God. Our sufficiency is in God. We're living in the days that we are. These are days of challenge, but they're also days of opportunity. If they had listened too much to their culture, they would have lost the plot. It was John Stott who spoke about double listening, listening to the Word and listening to the world, but with the primacy of the Word and the authority of it. Jesus Christ, in whatever culture we live in, in whatever era we live in, Jesus Christ is to be the cultural lens through which we view everything. And so the call is be committed, like Jesus, to do the will of Him who sent Him. And that means being committed to His Word of the Old and New Covenant the Word of God that takes us to Christ. And in our Bible workmanship, that's where we are to take people to Christ. Secondly, keep clean. They could find no fault in Jesus, because if they could have, they would have. We're not perfect, and we never will be this side of glory, but be actively engaged in that fight to put off self and to put on Christ and to feel the buoyancy of the Holy Spirit within, affirming to us that we belong as children of God and be submitted. Christ was submitted to the Word and will of the Father. We see that at Gethsemane. We see it especially at the cross. And we are to be submitted to Him, and that means being submitted to His Word. The Old Testament that predicts Him, the Gospels that record him, the epistles that explain him. We are to aim for excellence, not so that we can preen ourselves in front of packed churches, God forbid, or pride ourselves in our Bible knowledge, but that the gospel may be handled well and clearly, that we may see God glorified and his kingdom grow in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this means that we will, of necessity, have to be countercultural. And at times unpopular. We prepared for that. Because, my dear brothers and sisters in Jesus, we have a better message than this culture. 
we have a better message than the confusion that is being spread abroad. Ultimate identity in our culture is not to be found in sexuality or in gender or even nationality or ethnicity, but in Christ. In Christ and in the God who made us. In this, we are to be committed, clean, and submitted to the Lord. Paul to Timothy, remind them of these things. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best, Timothy. We might add in whatever sphere of influence we find ourselves do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. May it be so. To the glory of God. Amen. evening um, and for coming across to share with us today. Um, if anyone would like to speak to Jim about something he said this evening, I'm sure he'd be delighted um, to speak to you afterwards. Um, just a reminder that there's tea and coffee after the service down in the cafe on my right. Um, I think in light of what Jim has shared with us tonight, we should take time to sing our final hymn, um, which is Jesus Paid It All. Um, it's not in the hymn book, but it'll be on the screen behind me. Um, and the chorus of which says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Um, And after this, Jim will come and close our service um, in prayer. So standing to sing, um, Jesus paid it all.
Father God, we thank you for the truth of the words that we've just been singing, that Jesus is our cleansing. Lord Jesus, keep us clean, we pray. And now may the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest and remain upon us this day and for all our tomorrows.